traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-54, Efka From the very beginning, the essential ingredients were already there. Palm trees encircling a natural spring, surrounded by open desert. I've never been to Palmyra myself, but I once did visit the Siwa Oasis, the isolated spot in western Egypt where Cambyses lost an army. And it's absolutely shocking and bizarre to drive for hours with zero relief, then suddenly come across something so lush and fertile. Which must have been kind of how it felt for ancient nomadic pastoralists, exploring the desert in search of forage, the first time they saw Palmyra's Efka Spring. We have no idea what year that was, We're only able to date the time, maybe hundreds or even thousands of years later, when folks decided to settle down, at least for a little while. Stone tools mark a local settlement from 7500 BC, and the nearby tell holds multiple layers of more substantial remains. A mud brick structure from 2500 BC and additional structures slowly built up until the tell was crowned around 30 AD with the majestic Temple of Bel. All that time, all those tribes, and all those generations, drawn to the magic of a watering hole in the middle of the Syrian desert. You could even build a city nearby and watch that city grow and thrive and watch that city be sacked and burned and eventually all but abandoned. But down through all these major events, the Efka Spring kept flowing. And it'd be resonant and lovely and even poetic to give the Bloodline series some closure by telling you all that the Efka Spring kept right on flowing today. It'd be beautiful, but it'd be a lie. In fact, Palmyra's Efka Spring stopped flowing in 1994. 
Or, to put things a different way, it made it 99% of the way to the ending I was hoping for before it finally gave out. And that just happens to be a perfect analogy for quite a few parts of this story. Such as, you ask? Well, let's start with one of the series' anchor points, Queen Zenobia herself. She claimed descent from Cleopatra, and from the Empress Julia Domna. And if that were true, the bloodline bloodline would have gone right down to the end. But, as fate would have it, after ten generations, the documented bloodline actually ended with the sun-priest Samsi Garamus. Not that his story was lacking in drama or wouldn't make a suitable ending, but wow, it would have been pretty amazing to make that final connection. But since Zenobia and Samsi Garamus both lived in Syria at around the same time, it gave me a good enough excuse to tell her story anyway. And while we're talking about her story... Pretty much all the ancient sources paint Zenobia in glowing terms, or at least they do until her capture and subsequent trial in Emesa. Then what do you get? Well, you get a source you've always considered reliable, telling the story of Queen Zenobia pinning the blame for the whole debacle on a group of malicious advisors. I mean, why this radical 180 right at the very end? Then what, a comfy retirement in a lush estate near Hadrian's villa? And marriage and children and gradual acceptance into upper-class Roman society? I know we like our endings more crisp, even if they're doomed to be tragic, and you find yourself hoping that maybe Zosimus could have been right after all. Maybe while crossing from Europe to Asia, Zenobia decided to take her own life, before a shipwreck claimed her son along with everyone else. Roman legionaries consigned to the depths with eastern captives bound in chains, and Aurelian cursing the fact that his triumph would always feel somehow incomplete. But no, there's just too many sources confirming that Aurelian got just what he wanted. At least till the fall of 275, when he found himself stabbed in the back. But before that, he was riding high and putting the empire through a major reorg. Part of which was paving the way for the cult of Sol Invictus which is another of those series through lines that made it most of the way. What I mean is this. We've discussed the links between Sol Invictus and Elagabal and Shamash, but what we haven't discussed is how the worship of Sol was transitioned to the worship of Jesus. And to get into that, we need to pick up right around where we left things off. I already hinted at the seismic changes that'd serve as a backdrop for Zenobia's retirement. Now, Zenobia was born around 240, making her 34 at Aurelian's triumph. So, on the chance she lived to be 60 years old, she at least would have seen the new century. To give one reference point, 
a surviving Zenobia would be 72 at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. So, given that time frame, one big drama she likely lived through was the rise and fall of the Tetrarchy. And again, it's hard to gauge her reaction to watching Rome tear itself to shreds. I'm going to guess somewhere between a Mona Lisa smile and festive nightly celebrations. But I digress. The epic change I want to focus on is the rise of monotheism. And I'm going to take a pretty weird path, so please find a comfortable chair. At around the same time as Aurelian's triumph, news would have found its way to Rome of a few pretty notable deaths way off in the east. The first was the prophet Manny, the founder of Manichaeism. And, based on previous discussions, you can maybe guess the cause. For 32 years, the Zoroastrian priest Cartier had lived his life at a simmering boil, looking for ways to dispose of his troublesome rival. For the past three years, he'd been pestering Bahram that Manny's blasphemy had to be stopped. And in 274, he finally got his wish. Pretty early in Bahram's reign, Manny'd been banished from the Persian court and ordered to reside with a local client king named Bat. Of course, Manny being Manny, it wasn't too long before he had a new disciple, which only managed to enrage Cartier even more. Bot was ordered to Gundishapur to defend the prophet against trumped-up charges, but Manny decided that he'd rather defend himself. When he entered the gates of Gundishapur, despite being banned from the Persian court, it was all the excuse the Magi needed to accuse the prophet of treason. King Bahram ordered Manny's arrest and he spent the next few weeks in jail, bidding farewell to his friends and followers and preparing himself for his death. A disciple named Uzi supposedly witnessed the ascension of his soul to the realm of light. But all we know is, after 26 days, Manny was found dead in his cell. According to historian Werner Sunderman, later stories of his being executed by crucifixion or flaying alive were likely crafted in imitation of the death of Jesus. It is confirmed that his head was removed and mounted above the city's main gate, while his body was secreted away by a follower and taken to the city of Tessaphon. The mantle of leadership was passed to a loyal disciple named Marsisin. But Manichaeism was soon under attack by a fully emboldened Cartier. Hot on the heels of Manny's death came word of the death of King Bahram, the Persian ruler who'd sent reinforcements to break Palmyra's siege. The eldest son of King Shapur had only ruled for around three years, and similar to his brother Hormizd, his reign is poorly documented. 
His coinage shows him wearing a crown adorned with Mithra's rays. And his relief in the cliffs of Bishapur is considered among the finest. But apart from letting Cartier run loose, there's not much more we can say. Bahram was succeeded by his son Bahram, who'd held the role of Sakan Shah though reportedly he was still a teen at the time of his father's death. Bahram II would end up ruling for just over 17 years, and his religious policies would greatly impact the nature of the Persian Empire. While Kartir had been a partner to Bahram I, he soon became a senior advisor to the young Bahram II. The new Shahanshah appointed Kartir supreme judge of the Persian Empire, and also custodian of the fire temple of Anahida at Istakar. The temple of Anahida, as you may recall, was the temple where Ardashir served as high priest before he launched his bid for power and forged the Sassanid Empire. So, yeah, that's the family temple, and a pretty significant honor. But more than that, Kartir was the first and only non-king who was allowed to carve inscriptions. So, what did Kartir do with his power? Well, his inscriptions are happy to tell you. And the false doctrines of the adversary and the demons disappeared from the empire and were expelled. And the Buddhists, Brahmins, Nazarenes, Christians, Baptists, and Manichaeans were broken up, and their idols were destroyed, and the dwellings of their demons were annihilated and turned into places and seats of the gods. In short, Bahram and Kartir were trying to create a pure Zoroastrian Persia. And because it's fun and fits with the theme, let's talk about Armenia. I know, trust me, I'm heading somewhere with all this. Okay, so flash back with me to 252, right before Shapur's first invasion of Syria. Armenia is ruled by a surviving branch of the Parthian royal house, and the Armenian king Tiridates II just died after reigning for 35 years. His son, King Khosrov II, has just taken over, and wham, he finds himself stabbed in the heart by a Parthian noble named Anak. Khosrov's son, Tiridates, is only an infant, and with Sassanid forces invading Armenia, they whisk the young Tyke out of the country to the court of Tribonianus Gallus. Okay, now fast forward to 287, 13 years after Aurelian's triumph. Still with me? Okay, our young Tiridates is now 37 and has spent his whole life in Rome. Meanwhile, Bahram II, still in power, is trying to appease the emperor Diocletian. So what does he do? Well, among other things, he decides to surrender Persian control of Armenia. 
Now, by this time, his uncle Narses had been great king of Armenia for like 17 years. So it's a pretty safe bet he's not too pleased with Bahram's gratuitous handover. But in case you're wondering who is very happy, it's our new friend Tiridates, who's dusted off, hauled out east, and installed as king of Armenia. Though he got kicked out again a few years later, when Narsi advanced to Shahanshah, he was reinstalled in 299, and that time it finally stuck. In fact, Tiridates III, also known as Tiridates the Great, would continue to rule Armenia for the next 31 years. Now, according to tradition, when Tiridates fell ill in 301, he was cured by a Christian priest, which prompted his conversion to Christianity, which is how Armenia sometimes gets billed as the world's first Christian kingdom at least by those who don't count Edessa. But regardless, check this out. The Christian priest who cured Tiridates, St. Gregory the Illuminator, turns out he was the son of Anak, the guy who'd stabbed his father. I know, right? Anyway, the forced conversion of polytheistic Armenia into a unified Christian state was apparently both a very long and fairly brutal process. Personal motivations aside, it was also an attempt to define a Christian Armenia in contrast to a Zoroastrian Persia. Now, let's return to Aurelian's Rome in the days right after his triumph. According to historian Richard Stoneman, Sol Invictus was a major element in the propaganda surrounding Aurelian's return to the center of power in Rome. He also notes that Aurelian established a college of priests, the Pontifices Solus, equal in rank to the ancient pontiffs of Rome. And Warwick Ball notes, the sun cult was particularly promoted by Aurelian not merely as another add-on to the pantheon, but as a Roman national cult. There's little doubt that the Emperor Aurelian had genuine devotion to his patron god, but he may have also been trying to address an urgent imperial problem. The crisis of the 3rd century had shown that the time-tested methods of binding the empire— Devotion to the capital and military success were no longer equal to the task. But there was a more powerful unifying force, and Aurelian intended to use it. As Stoneman notes, Aurelian decided to strive to center on a single god the patriotic devotion that the majority of his subjects could never feel toward the city of Rome. According to Ball, the cult of the sun in the Roman Empire bore many characteristics of incipient monotheism. It certainly planted the idea of a single all-powerful god into the minds of the Romans. It was similar to what the Persians were doing, and tempting to view as an adoption or reaction, 
but can probably be seen as a general trend that was sweeping both Europe and Asia. According to historian Yuval Noah Harari, at the beginning of the first century AD, there were hardly any monotheists in the world. But by the end of the first millennium AD, most people in Europe, West Asia, and North Africa were monotheists. And they were monotheists of a particular stripe, those who believed in duality, the idea that the world is a constant battleground in the struggle between good and evil. The first religion to make this case was Persian Zoroastrianism, which featured a conflict between light and darkness, between Ahura Mazda and Angra Mainyu, and the concept of a single supreme deity who was fundamentally good. According to Ball, it also promised a hopeful afterlife, offering a day of judgment, salvation, resurrection, and paradise, rather than some vague amorphous netherworld. These were concepts that appealed to people on a deep and personal level. And it's also why, despite Aurelian, the worship of soul never really caught on. It didn't speak to human concerns like moral action or life after death. It just centered worship on one distant figure instead of a distant many. What was really needed was to tie the worship of a Roman god to a creedal faith like Zoroastrianism. Not Zoroastrianism itself, which was too associated with the Persians, and not, in the end, Manichaeism either, for pretty much the same reason. But there was another faith, born and raised in Roman Syria, that had already had around three centuries to develop a grassroots following. And the man who finally made the connection was the Roman Emperor Constantine. Though he's widely considered a Christian emperor, Constantine spent most of his public life worshipping Sol Invictus. We all know the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, a supposed triumph for Christianity. But if you look at the Arch of Constantine, erected soon after to mark the victory, it features absolutely zero Christian symbolism. But it does show a whole bunch of soul. There's a combined tondo of soul and Luna, a statue of soul carried alongside Victoria, and another soul statue opposite the emperor, basically a solar trifecta. The arch itself was sighted to align with the statue of Sol near the Roman Colosseum. In fact, Constantine's coins continued to show Sol for at least another ten years. Constantine's mother Helena was a well-known Christian, and his actions reflect a gradual conversion. But a later account is the one that makes the critical spiritual linkage. In a work completed after Constantine's death, the famous Christian historian Eusebius revised his earlier account of the battle to insert a dramatic scene. 
Now he has Constantine on the march toward Rome, looking up to see the sun and a cross of light above it, alongside the words, In hoc signo vinces, or in this sign, conquer. Then, again in the updated version, Christ visits Constantine the following night and tells him to use the Cairo sign, which leads to his victory over Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And whether or not this actually happened, the symbolism is clear. Constantine's visions are meant to reflect the transition from soul to Christianity. According to Professor Bart D. Ehrman, at some point, possibly prior to the battle, Constantine had come to believe that soul and Jesus were the same. Warwick Ball also highlights the surface-level connections. Christ had risen at sunrise, and the resurrection was equated with the rising sun. The second coming was expected from the east, early churches often faced the east, and the day of worship was changed from the Sabbath to the day of the sun, Sunday. And just to drive the point on home, I'll mention one more thing. In the year of his triumph, 274, Aurelian inaugurated the major festival of Dies Natalis Solis Invicti. The birthday of the unconquered sun took place on December 25th, the day of the winter solstice, when the sun once again began its increase from a day with minimal daylight. Sometime during the mid-350s, Constantine's heir, Constantius II, decided to co-opt the popular holiday by moving the date of Jesus' birth from January 6th to December 25th. And, well, Merry Christmas. So, looping back to where I started, a parallel through-line to the series Bloodline was the one from Shamash to modern Christianity which was totally insane and utterly mind-blowing, but also apparently untrue. Sol Invictus was not Ela Gabal, which breaks the link right down the middle. But the Roman adoption of Christianity is crazy all on its own. A one-time Syrian Jewish cult that syncretized with solar worship until it finally met an emperor who saw them both as one. The last topic I want to get into is, unsurprisingly, the most difficult. Telling this story against the backdrop of the ongoing tragedy in Syria. Which also fits with my general theme of making things most of the way. When I started the series in late 2014, the city of Emesa, Modern Homs had already endured a brutal three-year siege as part of Syria's civil war. At the time, Homs was Syria's third-largest city, along with Aleppo to the north and Damascus to the south. So it would have been a miracle if it had somehow managed to escape the war with its people unharmed and its ancient sites undamaged. But apart from Emesa, other places I was planning to cover, like Hatra, Dura Europos, and Palmyra, 
were still pretty much intact. Actually, many of the structures that had collapsed over time or been repurposed as churches or mosques or living spaces had been restored by archaeologists to a semblance of their previous condition, which is pretty much what you see when you look up images of those places online. But even as I was writing the first few episodes of Bloodline, in mid-2014, Daesh, or ISIS, had already gained control of much of the surrounding region. And by the way, I call them Daesh because at some point I heard they find the term unpleasant. At the time, I was pretty naive, and I thought that the greatest threat to ancient sites would be accidental damage when rival groups were fighting nearby. I certainly didn't bank on nihilistic extremists setting their sights on methodically destroying the region's history and culture. I mean, this was an area that had been Islamic, more or less, since the 7th century, and over the next 1300 years, no authority considered these sites an intolerable affront to their religion. But then, in March of 2015, news came out that Daesh was demolishing Hatra. When the city was recaptured just last year, there was some relief that only the statues and sculptures were damaged, while the buildings had been left mostly untouched. And I mean, sure, we'll take any slivers of good news where we can. But Dura Europa suffered a different fate. And again, at the time, I didn't really grasp how groups who supposedly despised pagan sites were more than happy to pillage artifacts in order to finance their violence. Around 70% of Dura Europos ended up being destroyed by looters, with looting ramping sharply up when Daesh controlled the region. But possibly the best-known tragedies emerged from the city of Palmyra. And those were happening very much in real time as I was writing and producing this series. In May 2015, at the time Daesh captured Palmyra, they already controlled nearly half the territory of modern Syria, an area holding somewhere between 3 and 8 million people. I mean, this is all very recent history, but that is completely insane. In June of 2015, Daesh destroyed a famous statue, the Lion of Alat, which is interesting in kind of a grim way. Because, according to historian Bart D. Ehrman, the first recorded instance of specifically religious intolerance leading to the destruction of Palmyra's antiquities occurred at the end of the 4th century. It took place at the Temple of Alat, and it was done by early Christians. The Christian emperor Theodosius had ordered the closing of pagan temples, and a local group of Christian zealots decided to enforce his decree. The end result, according to Ehrman, was a severely mutilated statue of the goddess, which is a useful reminder that religious vandalism is certainly nothing new. 
In July of 2015, scenes emerged of Daesh executing Syrian soldiers in Palmyra's amphitheater. I was actually in eastern Turkey at the time, so none of this seemed too remote. But August was the truly gut-wrenching month for news about Palmyra. During that month, both the Temple of Baal Shemin and the Temple of Bel were completely destroyed by Daesh. And August was also the month that Daesh executed Palmyra's devoted protector, 83-year-old Syrian archaeologist Khalid al-Assad. Al-Assad had been born in Palmyra, and for 40 years, from 1963 through 2003, he'd lived at the site as its principal custodian. Several of his children, including his eldest son, Walid, and eldest daughter, Zenobia, took careers that allowed them to stay closely involved in helping to manage the site. In the run-up to Daesh's arrival, al-Assad had the site museum completely evacuated, which is why so many Palmyrene treasures still survive today. But al-Assad himself refused to leave. His son-in-law, Khalil al-Hariri, explained that the scholar's deep connections with every artifact and every stone in Palmyra meant he wouldn't abandon his home. After Daesh captured Palmyra in May, al-Assad was detained, then released, then detained again, and questioned repeatedly about the location of hidden antiquities, especially gold. Eventually, after giving them nothing, he was taken to a public square and executed. So, what are we supposed to take from all this? Sure, you can hear it as a story of hatred and ignorance and senseless brutality, but you can also hear it as a story of courage and devotion and the willingness to stand by what's important to you regardless of the cost. You can hear it as the story of a man so in love with a place and time that he wanted to do everything he could to help preserve and protect it. And it should be no surprise that I've had Khalid al-Assad in my mind and in my heart all through the making of this podcast series, and that the series is dedicated to his memory just as much as it is to the memory of the place and time he obviously loves so much. So, what next? Wow, that's a really good question. Podcasting, sure, sometime, in some form. I enjoy doing it so much that I can't ever really see giving it up. And yes, I have some ideas I've been mulling over for other series and miniseries, and I'll be letting you know more about those once I get them fleshed out a bit more. I'm also thinking about exploring some other projects related to the ancient world. But those are also in the early stages, and will take some time and thought and work before they're ready to go public. So stay subscribed and like the Facebook page and follow me on Twitter. I'm planning to post a bunch more photos from my recent history-related travels. I think you'll enjoy them. And again, I really can't say it enough. 
Thank you so much for coming along with me on this journey. Through all the weird digressions and crazy king names and everything else that makes this podcast so fun for me and hopefully fun for you. You guys are the best. So, what to leave you with? Well, how about I tell you a story? Once upon a time, there was a Babylonian king named Garmus, who desired a woman named Sinonis to be his wife. Because she turned him down, he imprisoned her in chains of gold and had her lover Rodanes bound to a cross. Sinonis managed to rescue Rodanes, and the two fled together. Having numerous crazy adventures and making many narrow escapes. In the end, Garmus was overthrown, and Rodanes and Sinonis became king and queen of Babylon. If this sounds like a pretty standard romance tale, there's good reason. It was the very first. The work, called the Babylonica, was written in Greek in the late 2nd century by a Syrian novelist named Iamblichus. Iamblichus claimed descent from the priest kings of Emesa, as well as a connection to the Armenian king Sohamus, which makes him a pretty likely candidate for the series' central bloodline. He sourced the story of Rodanes and Sinonis to a tutor during his youth, who'd been taken prisoner in the city of Babylon during Trajan's Parthian War. Though it's considered the very first romance tale, the couple's relationship is pretty turbulent. The story's largely driven by the energy and courage of its central figure, Sinonis. As historian Stevens and Winkler write, she has, from the beginning, been a remarkably daring and energetic heroine, showing initiative in escaping from prison and engineering Rodanes' liberation. But instead of talking about Sinonis, it's much more fun to just quote a surviving fragment. At this point in the story, Sinonis is about to kill a perceived rival for Rodanes' affections, and a companion, Sariakos, is trying to talk her down. But Sinonis is just not having it. Do not get in my way unless you want to see murder here in this deserted countryside. You know that I do not lie. I have you as witness of my courage. You see that I have a sword and I have a wound. Rodanes has only been hung from the cross. I have actually touched death and know from my own experience that people dying feel no pain, nor is death distressing. Threaten me with no dangers, no arrests, no punishment. I, who did not fear stabbings or crosses, fear no one. And I don't know about all you guys, but I am stepping way back off. The Babylonica was probably written around 170 AD, and it's fun to picture the author Iamblichus coming to visit his Emocene relatives.
his head full of tales of eunuchs and cannibals and poisoned honey. He'd stoop to greet their first young girl, then gaze at her newborn sister. Julia Mesa and Julia Domna, the latter horoscoped to marry a king, portending a life more full of drama than anything he could imagine. And since no great thing comes without a price, he knew that someday she'd suffer a wound. So he'd find a way to also give her a sword. <laughs>